0: Last hour, we were looking at narrative materials. And the author can use all kinds of literary devices. These are a few that those that study literature identify. And by the way, a good author on this whole area in terms of scripture and scripture narrative is Leland Ryken. Leland Ryken. R-Y... K-E-N. Very good. Excellent writer on literature in general and narrative in particular. Uh, He does good work in the other genres that we'll talk about as well. He's got different books out. In fact, some of this material I'm giving you comes from, can't remember, one of his books. So authors will use different literary devices to tell this plot or to amplify certain things in this plot that you're trying to develop. They may divide their work into different scenes. Another scene one, scene two, scene three, different scenes. These are the most important features. And if they divide these up into different scenes, then you want to try to identify and isolate them to be able to see the movement of the plot. Another literary device is dialogue. There's dialogue between the major characters, or dialogue in some way. You have dialogue in the Gospels. Usually Jesus and the disciples interacting. So Matthew will put you into that situation, and you hear the conversation. And you're sitting on the rock next to the disciples there,
1: or you're one of
0: the disciples. So put yourself in the story, sit down alongside of them and listen to the dialogue and experience what the disciples are experiencing. So dialogue is nothing more than just communication amongst characters. And some narratives, this carries the major part of the plot, is the dialogue. Sometimes it's minor. Other rhetorical devices, remember some of the things that we talked about, comparison, in other words, things might be compared, things might be contrasted, you have repetition sometimes, different rhetorical devices. Fourthly, look for a point of view. Now always in all of these narratives we are given, you can assume that the ultimate point of view is God's point of view in these stories. That's not always the case in terms of narrative outside of Scripture. But within that broader point of view The story of Joseph in the book of Genesis is written from the perspective of Joseph because it's telling his experiences and it's written from his perspective. It's not written from Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the secondary character. The Gospels are from Christ's point of view, not the disciples. Sometimes an author might use what's called a test motif, where the main character is put in different difficult situations and the character works to get out of that circumstance or to deal with that circumstance. It serves as an obstacle. It serves as a test. They're called test motifs. Probably the best example is the story of Abraham is full of tests of faith. And you can isolate at least seven different tests of faith that all develop his faith to the point that he has an ultimate test of faith. Remember the ultimate test of faith in Abraham? The story of Abraham? Sacrifice of his son. And the book of Hebrews interprets that as Abraham actually had resurrection faith. If you read the book of Hebrews in chapter 11. But his whole life is a series of tests that God put him through. In some cases, he failed. The famine where he took his family to Egypt, put his wife, family at risk, that was a failure. Ishmael was a failure that uh, the whole world is still paying the price for, uh, suffering the consequences of. So he didn't pass them all, but he progressed. He recovered. And then ultimately we have the test of Isaac. So that's the test motif. The writer may use the concept of transformation where where things are transformed in some way. Everything changes. There's development. It can go in both directions. It can change for the better or it can change for the worse. The tragic kind of narrative it goes for the worst the change is catastrophic we mentioned adam we mentioned Saul. you could include samson and you have the alternative the comedic or comic transformation where all of the circumstances are working against the main character but somehow he overcomes and somehow he is successful or he's victorious where the situation is transformed for the positive. We have suffering, like Joseph went through all those periods of suffering under Potiphar as a result of false accusation, but the situation is transformed in that he ends up in a positive situation. Then he has a similar experience with Pharaoh, where he's imprisoned, but the whole situation is reversed and tra- it's transformed such that he becomes second in command of all of Egypt. So the author is using transformation, you might even say a test motif, and there's some dialogue, not a whole lot, but God is changing the whole situation in order to bring about that great salvation that chapter 50 is the climax of. We have a divine interpretation of all of those events. They meant it for evil, And Joseph, through godliness, transformed the situation. And from God's perspective, God meant it for good. All those evil circumstances worked out for good. See the transformation. There might be foils, what are called foils in literature, something that heightens or contrasts certain things. And usually the the contrast is in contrast to the most important thing of the story or element of the story. You have Cain and Abel. Who is the foil? Cain's the foil. Kills Abel. You have Lot and Abraham. Lot serves as a foil in that story. And he becomes a test of faith. And Abraham uh, responds. You have Jacob and Esau. Who's the foil there? Esau. You have Lee and Rachel in the marriage of Joseph in that story. You have Saul and David. Saul acts as a foil in the story. The publican and the Pharisee in the Gospels. Pharisee is the foil. Lots of examples. Think of others as well. Make sense? That's narrative. That's biblical narrative. That's historical narrative. Those are the main elements. And when you study narrative, these are the kinds of things that you look for. Besides all of those other exegetical tools that we've talked about, all the other principles that we utilize, you look for these things in the story to enhance your understanding and refine and clarify. Now, let's take a quick look at the Gospels. Because the Gospels, like I said, it's debated as to whether they are a unique form. They're certainly narrative, and certainly historical narrative. But they have some features that are unique to the four Gospels, unique in terms of literature in general. So let's talk a little bit about them. The primary form, as we've just said, is its narrative, and its historical narrative. We have a scene developed in the life of Christ in every every little story that is included, and some Gospel writers include some stories, some omit them, but in every case, they develop a scene. Jesus is always the main character, and there's usually secondary characters, even Satan in one case. Temptation of Christ. But most often, uh, the twelve disciples, or sometimes individuals like Mary and Martha in the story of Lazarus. And Lazarus would also be a major character there, Jesus and Lazarus, Mary and Martha, secondary characters. And then we have those events associated with that particular situation. So the primary form is narrative. You might even consider it as epic narrative. In other words, it's a broader story and a gathering of individual stories about Jesus Christ forming the entire life of Christ. It's not strictly speaking a biography. That's why it's somewhat, these are unique. A biography would not, more than likely, omit about 30 years of the life of its major character. A biography would not just focus on the birth narratives of the major character and the last three years of their life, a biography, strictly speaking. So the primary form is not biographical, but it is a story, it is a narrative, it is selective, as we've said, it is interpretive. Secondly, they each have a focus. They focus in... Obviously, the main focus is Jesus Christ. But each story, each of the four Gospels, has a different focus. They are individually focused on different areas. And they are also focused on different audiences. You can pick that out by looking at the details, looking at what is selected, what is omitted, in terms of every individual detail. And in the wording, how is it phrased? And what what is the focus? In other words, what is the main focus of the Gospel of Matthew? It's not giving a biography, but it's giving a perspective or a focus on Jesus Christ. What's the focus in terms of who Jesus Christ is? Matthew. King. And more specifically, he's the... Messianic king that Israel anticipates. That's the focus of the Gospel of Matthew. Everything in the book of Matthew is presented to show you that Jesus is, in fact, the Messianic king that the Jews look for and who is prophesied in all of the Old Testament. Therefore, in Matthew, you have the little phrase, thus is fulfilled what was spoken of by Isaiah. Thus is what was fulfilled Because he's tying it back to the Old Testament. The Messiah had to fit the description of the Old Testament. Matthew does that. And he pulls it from, essentially, the Old Testament. And he also emphasizes the kingdom. The kingdom is a focus of the book. Because when the Messiah, Messianic King, was to arrive, he was to bring the kingdom. So the focus is for a Jewish audience to portray Jesus Christ as that messianic king. It's not the biography of Jesus. It's a gospel or a focus on Jesus as king. And Mark has a totally different focus. In Matthew, kings speak. Kings give sermons. So we have the Sermon on the Mount. We have the series of parables. We have other sermons. We have the Olivet Discourse. In Mark, you just have little glimpses of those. They're, they're kind of minor in the Gospel of Mark because it's written for a different focus. It's to show Jesus as the servant of the Lord. And it's written to a Gentile audience or a Roman audience. Predominantly Roman. And the Roman culture, they were interested in what can this guy do. So that's the focus. And we could talk about the focus of Luke. You can tell me. What's the focus of Luke. And by the way, in Luke, you have more individual characters, individual incidents with people than any of the other four Gospels. Yes, his humanity or God as the ultimate or ideal man. The focus would be Jesus as the ideal man. And what did the Greeks emulate? All their gods were after the image of man. Man was the focus. So here's the ideal man. And man in relationship to all other men. So that's the focus. So it's written to a Greek-minded, Hellenistic-thinking culture, marked to the Roman culture. And John is the broadest. The first three are synoptic in that they're the most similar. John's is the most different. It's, It's unique, and the focus is broader in that it's written to all that would read, the world. In fact, that's an emphasis of the book, is the world. And the focus is Jesus as God. So it has a focus, or they have a focus. And in terms of literary form, you would could call them somewhat of a hybrid literary form. And by hybrid, we have probably the most extensive and most different types of narrative that you can find. You have elements of biography, you have historical chronicle, you have reports, you even have fiction. Do you know that? Yeah, you even have fiction in the Gospels. Parables, very good, very good. Parables are they're real life, in other words, they could occur, but they're more general, they're, they're little, smaller narratives. We'll talk about them specifically but they're not necessarily true in terms of something that actually took place. It's a story that you might even include as fictional. You have sermons, you have dialogue, you have proverbs, you have poetry, you have question and answer, you have irony, you have all, a, all of the elements of the, and literary devices that you could find in narrative. So it's somewhat of a hybrid nature. And they all do have a particular and very specific purpose, and each, each of them is related to that focus, the, the, the purpose of each. So the purpose of Matthew's Gospel is to present Jesus as the Messianic King that fulfills all of the Old Testament, all of the hopes and dreams of the Jewish people. purpose of Mark is to show that Jesus is the ultimate servant who does all of the work of God. Miracles are emphasized in Mark. The word immediately is probably the key word in all of Mark. Because Jesus goes from one situation and immediately he went somewhere else and immediately he does this and immediately this happens. In other words, we're bombarded with what this servant is doing. He's acting. We don't have any birth narratives. Who cares about the birth of a servant? So no birth narratives. The ideal man in Luke, the purpose of that is to show that Jesus is the ideal man. We have the most extensive birth narratives, gives the most details about the ideal man. Matthew just gives you enough details such that he fulfills the messianic promises of the birth of uh, Messiah. So we have the virgin birth stressed and the Isaiah passage there. And the purpose of John is, he tells us himself, select certain miracles so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. In other words, God himself. He has the character and nature of God so that you may believe who Jesus is and have eternal life. So they all have a very specific purpose, and John makes it crystal clear what his purpose is. So these are some basic issues to keep in mind when we approach biblical narrative, which is historical narrative. Make sense? That's our foundation for narrative. Last hour, we were looking at narrative material, spent a lot of time on it. Partly because, as I said, it is the foundation for all the other material in Scripture. But there are other literary form or other genre in Scripture that you will encounter within many of those narratives. So let's take a look at the others. The next one would be poetry. So, let's spend a little bit of time talking about poetic literature. Now, when it comes to biblical poetry, you're going to find out that uh, biblical poetry is a little unique from poetry in general. And I'll try to bring that out. But, overall, when we speak of poetry, poetry in and of itself, by itself, has certain characteristics that are common in terms of poetry that we'll find in Scripture as well. But I'll highlight the differences as we go through the description here. So, poetry, first of all, just as I emphasized in narrative... I mentioned that when we speak of the Bible, we're talking about historical narrative. So also, when we're talking about poetry and scripture, we're talking about Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry has some unique features that are not necessarily the same as poetry in general. Now, it has a lot of commonality, but there's uh, some unique features that we'll look at. So everything that we talk about when we talk about poetry, we're describing Hebrew poetry. And that's even more specific than biblical because even the New Testament poetry basically is Hebrew poetry. And you'll see why I say that in a moment. Reichen, the writer that I referred to earlier, and there's the name there, says the following, Poets are especially artists who paint pictures with words. That's a description of virtually all poetry. And that would include biblical poetry. So we're dealing with vivid language, language that has unique characteristics. Sidlow Baxter says the following in describing Hebrew poetry. He says, we ought clearly to understand also that the term poetical refers only to their form. Only their form. This is another unique feature of Hebrew poetry. He goes on. It must not be thought to imply that they are simply the product of human imagination. Key word there is simply. He goes on, there is glorious poetry here, but there is nothing of the merely fanciful or unreal. These books portray real human experiences and grapple with profound problems and express the big realities. And what he's getting at here is when we speak of biblical poetry, we're not talking about fanciful poetry, It's not describing things that could not actually happen in reality. And that's true of all Hebrew poetry. We'll talk some more about that. He goes on to say in this quote there, Especially do they concern themselves with the experience of the godly in the varying vicissitudes of this changeful changeful life which is ours under the sun. Moreover, experiences which are here dealt with were permitted to come to man in order that they might be as guides for the godly ever after. So these are experiences that happen to real people as guides or examples for you and I as well. These experiences, he goes on, are here recorded and interpreted for us by the spirit of inspiration through holy men of old who spoke and wrote as they were moved by him. Thus, in these poetic books, we have a most precious treasury of spiritual truth. And again, the emphasis here is everything that we have in Hebrew poetry deals with realities, things that actually could happen and things that actually had happened in people's lives. Sidlow Baxter in his introduction to the poetic books. So that's Hebrew poetry. Its occurrence, where do you find Hebrew poetry? Well, first of all, it's the second most frequent of all of the literary genre. This would be after narrative. And that's the main reason I'm dealing with it. Secondly, is because you'll encounter poetic material more often than you will epistolary. Even though we in the New Testament stress the epistolary literature, you'll encounter poetic literature in Scripture in general more often. Second most frequent literary genre. We have 5 specific Old Testament books that are classified as poetic. Which means that the main literary form for those 5 books is the literary genre of poetry. And you can name them. Go ahead, name them. Psalms, Psalms the most important Proverbs, second Song, hmm? of Song of Solomon, 3, two more. Nope, that's prophetic. What comes before Psalms, and what comes after Job? Job, mm-hmm. book of Job, and one more that's philosophical, you might even say. No, we mentioned Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes, number five. So five books that are classified as poetic, and there's only seven Old Testament books that don't contain any poetic verses at all. And those are Leviticus, contains no poetic literature. Ruth, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Haggai, and Malachi. All of the others have poetic elements and passages. And in the New Testament, we have, first of all, we have quotations out of the poetic books, or quotations out of poetic passages elsewhere in Scripture outside of the poetic books. In the New Testament, we even have a quote from an ancient poet. You know where that would be? In that Acts 17 passage that Paul is dealing with the Athenians. They were familiar with Greek culture, Greek writings, so the only quote that he does in uh, Acts chapter 17 is from pagan poets. And he states that in the book. Even your own poets, he says. But the New Testament is also predominantly filled with, when it deals with poetic works, uh, quotations from the Old Testament. And there's some examples of others as well. But they would all be, in the New Testament, classified as Hebrew poetry. It'll have the characteristics at all lay out for you of Hebrew poetry. C.H. Bullock says the following: The Old Testament books, referring to the poetical books, considered in this volume contain some of the most potent literature of human history, and the ideas they treat are among the most cogent that the human heart has entertained. So we have powerful books that express themselves through the means of the genre of poetry. Thirdly, the purpose of poetic books, it's mainly to appeal to the emotions. Narrative, what does it appeal to? Do you remember what we said about narrative? It appeals to your experience. In other words, it gives you a sense of what would it be like to be there. Whereas the Poetic literature is designed to work on your emotions. Now, in a good way, not, you know, we talk about playing on people's emotions, but we generally have a negative connotation to that. But our emotions are a legitimate means of expressing and experiences that we have, that God built into us. It's just sin that distorts them and misuses them. But poetry is designed to appeal and communicate through the emotions. So it's a special use of language to uh, reach us through the emotions. So they are affective, affective, with an A in nature. That's why they're artists who paint these pictures with words that Leland describes there. And as Baxter outline for us. They also portray real experiences, not fanciful experiences. Let's take a look at the characteristics. The thing that distinguishes Hebrew poetry from other kinds of poetry, can anyone suggest what that might be? It's huge and major when it deals with Hebrew poetry. How is it different?
1: Concepts
0: of parallel sound. Very good. Parallel concept—that's a good way of putting it. Parallel concepts as opposed to parallel sounds. Very good. We just call that parallelism. Yes, we will in great detail. <laughs> Thank you for asking. Parallelism, and and you'll see the logic here and kind of the thought of God himself, why one of the major characteristics of poetry in general, or most poetry, wouldn't work with Scripture. But parallelism transcends language, for example. Now, most people, when you think of poetry, you think, as Jim was pointing out, parallel sound, or you have rhyme. We call that rhyme. Don't look for rhyme in Hebrew poetry. Why wouldn't it work in Hebrew poetry? Yeah, it'd be very difficult to be able to find a word that both rhymes in Hebrew and corresponding words that would also rhyme in English. It'd be virtually impossible to do that. So rhyme is not prominent in Hebrew poetry. What is prominent is parallelism And this slide is just for Patricia. The rest of you can skip over it. (laughs) Parallelism is the corresponding of one line of poetry with another. And that's the major characteristic of Hebrew, or if you want to describe it as biblical poetry. You have one line, line one, and then you have a second line, And if it's poetic, those lines will be in parallel. They'll they'll have some elements that relate them together in each other. Or you might have a series of lines, and if they're all in parallel, they'll be linked with some characteristics. So parallelism is the corresponding of one line of poetry with another. Another writer describes parallelism in the following. He says, The corresponding on one verse with another I call parallelism when a proposition is delivered and a a second subjoined to it or drawn under it, equivalent or contrasted with in the sense or similar to it in the form of grammatical construction. These I call parallel lines and the words or phrases answering one to another in the corresponding lines I call parallel lines. So that's parallelism in some detail. Another writer, the text, Klein, Blumberg, and Hubbard, parallelism is that phenomenon whereby two or more successive poetic lines strengthen, reinforce and develop each other's thought as a kind of emblematic additional thought, the follow-up lines further define, specify, expand, intensify, or contrast the first. So the bottom line, as I just simply put it, parallelism is the corresponding of one line of poetry with another. And it can do different things. It can expand it and try to says it can expand, it can intensify, it can contrast, it can define, it can specify, all those things. But there's a correspondence of one line of poetry with another. Does that give you what parallelism is? There are different kinds of poetry, and I'll give you examples of each of these. In fact, we'll look them up. I'll have you read most of these. Now, we're already familiar, because we've already talked a little bit about what we might describe as synonymous parallelism, and you can probably guess that synonymous parallelism is when you have one line that is similar to another line, that's synonymous, as opposed, I'll give it to you ahead of time, as opposed to antithetical parallelism. But let's look at synonymous parallelism first. Synonymous is when one line is similar to the next line, or the second line is similar to the first line, however you want to put it. Same idea, same thought, sometimes even same words, but more often than not, similar words, but different words. So let's start looking up some passages so you have close similarity between the lines. Let's just kinda of go around. Mark, you want to get the first one? Uh John, get Psalm thirty one, you wanna get thirty-seven two, Jim seven sixteen, Keith. Well let's all look at Psalm 136 and Patricia twenty-four and Josh 19-2. See if you can tell how the first line is similar to the second line. Mark, you want to read 491?
1: It says, hear this, all peoples. You hear all inhabitants of the world.
0: Okay. What's the difference between line 1 and line 2 in terms of essential thought? Your answer should be, all people listen. Okay, the answer to the question is virtually no difference, because you have a similarity between the two. It's basically saying the same thing. It's just using different language. That's what we mean by parallelism. Hear this all peoples, and you could say it another way, give ear all inhabitants of the earth. It's basically just calling you to listen. Two different lines. So one of the things that synonymous parallelism does is it reinforces. It says the same thing twice, or close to the same thing twice. You see that? John, uh, Psalm three one. Read it How
1: many are my foes? Many are rising.
0: See that line one? It's formed in a question, but the issue is I'm surrounded by all these. In this case, uh, adversaries. And the second line, same thing. Many are rising up against me. Here's here's the answer. He, he asks a question, but the answer is parallel. It's the same. It's in the context of a prayer, so it's just the psalmist is calling to God's awareness that he's in trouble here. See that? Parallelism. 37.2, you got it? Beverly? But they
1: shall soon be cut down like Grass
0: and wither has been earth. Okay. Line one. Mine says they will wither quickly like the grass or cut down like the grass. And the next line, not too much different. Okay? See the parallelism? That's synonymous parallelism. Jim seven sixteen. Oh, by the way, in that same psalm, if you just skip down to thirty-seven ten. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. Same thing, two lines. In fact, this is the most common of all of the types of parallelism that you'll find in Scripture. Many of the Psalms are just line after line after line of parallel thoughts. 716, Jim.
1: His mischief
0: will return upon his own head. His okay. Let's get that. See the similarity? In fact, when I read that before, not understanding or knowing the meaning of the word pate, but recognizing that I have synonymous parallelism here, what do I do? I look at line one, Oh, it has to have something to do with one's head, and it's probably the top of one's head. So, just identifying that this is synonymous parallelism will help you to understand maybe a word that is not understood. But the thing to notice, you see the parallelism. 136. In fact, this is repetition to the extreme almost. It's synonymous to the extreme. Yeah, yeah. give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of the gods, for His, his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord, of the, on and on and on and on. It varies and it changes a little bit, but it seems the whole thing is just praising God and it gives the reason for his loving kindness is everlasting, and even the identical phrase is repeated over and over. So it's just trying to just hit you over and over and over with this same theme. And hopefully, by the time you get to the end, oh, I've got it now. I think I understand it. Yeah, like, yeah. I get the point.
1: Someone take that.
0: Yeah, you parents can understand how important this principle is here. Okay, 19.2. Day unto
1: day, utter speech, and night night reveals knowledge.
0: And if you read the next line, you have some parallelism again, but 19.2, talking about the creation or the heavens. In other words, it gives communication or revelation The only difference there talks about doing it in the day, and the second line says the same thing, except it's emphasizing the night, and night under night shows knowledge.
1: Which is interesting that he uses polar opposites in terms of night and day for the the picture, right? but the meaning behind it it is always the same. Yeah, that's cool.
0: Yeah. That's poetry, and that's parallelism. Can you say that it would be very difficult to try to introduce rhyme here? because you just couldn't translate it. But it doesn't matter in terms of parallelism. You can just translate the parallelism, and it comes across, and you get the same effect, whether you're reading Hebrew or you're reading English, or whatever language is translated. So that's synonymous. Synonymous parallelism. And as I mentioned, if you have synonymous parallelism, the, the alternative would be antithetical. Antithetical. And what antithetical parallelism is when you have lines of contrast. And that is the second most common. And it's most common in what book? In the Psalms, synonymous is most common, but you have antithetical in the Psalms, but you have more antithetical in what book? Proverbs. Yeah. Yeah. We have one line contrasting or a series of line contrasting other lines. Here's some examples. Do uh, you want to get the first one there, Keith? And Mark, you want to do Psalm 35, John 37, 9, Beverly, Proverbs 10, 1, and once you read verse 4 as well, Jim 15, 1. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Way of the wicked. Okay, see the contrast? What's contrasted? Righteous and the righteous and the wicked. and in that case, what else is contrasted? Righteous. Okay, the outcome or consequences or something along those lines. So when you're looking at antithetical, this is the things that you want to pull out. What is the contrast? And sometimes there's two elements that are contrasted or sometimes only one. You got thirty verse five.
1: For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for a night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning.
0: What's contrasted there?
1: His anger, his favor, and the outcomes of both.
0: Okay. Ang- God's anger as opposed to God's favor and the outcomes of the of the two. Contrast. Weeping in joy. Weeping and joy, three elements. Thirty-seven nine. So we've got uh, Psalm one one six, Psalm thirty verse five. Now let's look at Psalm thirty-seven nine.
1: For the evildoers shall be cut off; those who wait for the Lord shall inherit
0: the land. Okay, bring out the contrasts, two things again.
1: The evildoers and um, the rest, righteous. the righteous people that
0: are cut off. Okay. Those that are cut off as opposed to inheriting. Positive, negative. Now, in the book of Proverbs, we said uh, there's many of them. Beverly, read verse one first of all, and we'll look at the contrast there, and then I'll let you look at verse 4. A my son has a black
1: father, but a blue son is the king of his
0: mother. Any contrast there?
1: Well, the mother and father.
0: Um... Those would probably be more synonymous. In other words, you could even substitute parent. Okay. Yeah. But so, the other, what else is contrast? A
1: wise son and a foolish son.
0: Okay, wise and foolish sons. And then
1: glad and grief.
0: Yeah, what they bring to the parents. They either bring gladness or they bring grief. See the contrast? Read verse 4 as well.
1: He who has a slack hand, becomes have but the hand.
0: Okay. Contrast. Black
1: hand, and
0: then, Hand the Mm-hmm. In other words, uh, what we have contrasted here is laziness as opposed to good work ethic or industriousness, and what else is contrast? Uh, or really yeah, the outcome of a lazy person will end in poverty. The outcome of uh, an industrious person will bring wealth. Okay. 15-1, Jim.
1: A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger.
0: Okay. Clear contrast? And that contrast?
1: Well, a gentle answer with a harsh word, and the outcome of a gentle answer turns away the wrath versus anger. Yeah. Turns
0: away wrath, and the other stirs up anger. Okay. See the point we're getting at here? Lines that are in contrast, and many of them actually have the element of outcome in terms of the situations that are described. So that's synonymous, that's antithetical, and a third most common is called synthetic, And synthetic is similar to synonymous, but it has an an additional element to it. Synthetic is the second line develops the first line further. So we have a development, or you might even describe it as a staircase. It takes one step up. It can complete, it can fill out the first. See the difference between that so you have you have elements of synonymous parallelism in it, but not strictly speaking parallel, you have kind of a movement, a development. And the line between synthetic and synonymous is sometimes hard to discern, but it's a specific type of parallelism. You want to, Keith, uh, get Psalm 95.3, and Patricia, Proverbs 4.23 for examples of synthetic. First of all, ninety five three. do you have that one? For the Lord is a great God, and a great King of all gods. You see the step? See the advancement? Okay. And Proverbs 4.23.
1: Okay.
0: Is there another? What's the next verse? Okay, the more specific second two lines there, but even within the first two lines there, you still have advancement or movement or development. It puts the
1: heart as important. Second thing says it's very important.
0: Gives the reason. Screams of life. Yeah, it gives the reason for the importance of the heart. Very good. Another one that you can draw down is Psalm 2.6. It says, Yet I have set my king upon Zion. And then the next line, My holy hill. Not just Zion, but the idea of God possessing it and it being more specific. Synthetic. So you have synonymous, you have antithetical, and you have synthetic. Those are your most common. Synonymous, the most common. Antithetical, by far, the second most. And on occasion, you might see synthetic. And then there's there's others that people have identified, but those are your more common ones. And in terms of others, there's one that's called emblematic. And I've got a very visual one. And when we say emblematic... We mean that one line kind of gives the point, and then the other line, it can be first or it can be second, the other line gives an image or a picture, something real vivid that you can visualize. gives the idea or the point. And it's not always the first line, sometimes it can be the second line. You might have the emblem first. But one of them has an emblem, one of them has the main idea. And where do we leave off? Josh, you want to do Psalm 42.1. Mark, back to you, Proverbs 11.22. That Proverbs 11.22 is very graphic. Psalm
1: 42.1. As the deer for the water brooks, so hence my soul for you, O God.
0: You see the emblem? In this case, the emblem is in the first line. In other words, in your mind, you're visualizing this deer that is very, very thirsty, panting. It's been running from, from a lion or something. It's panting and it's looking for water. And the idea, that's, that's the picture, that's the imagery and the idea that's conveyed there. So my soul pants for thee, God. I, I'm surrounded by enemies and I, you know, I, I need your rescue. I need your water. I need your refreshing. So, line one in this case is the emblem, and line two is the idea. That's Proverbs eleven twenty two.
1: As a ring of gold, the swine's
0: Now, now that's the image. <laughs> so, stop a minute. Put that image in your mind. Let's see. What does a swine look like? And it's a, what a gold ring in the nose. Okay.
1: So is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. Oh
0: <laughs> I thought you'd enjoy that one. (laughs) So, emblematic. That's a kind. Uh, It's not so frequent, but as you can see, there's two real good ones there. Psalm 42.1, Proverbs 11.22. We should have balanced it out and got one where it talks about. It. I'll let you guys look for it and bring it next week. <laughs> okay, there's also, there's also what's called climactic. The second line repeats the first with the exception of the last term or phrase. Second line repeats the first with the exception of the last term or phrase. John, do you want to do Psalm 29, 1 and 2?
1: Describe to the Lord, all heavenly beings, describe to the Lord glory and strength. Describe to the Lord the glory through his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of
0: holiness. You can see the, not only the repetition, and you have some elements left out, that's classified as climactic. Okay, that's the major characteristic of Hebrew poetry is parallelism. Is that clear enough? Another characteristic, a second characteristic, is the use of metaphorical language, and that's characteristic of all poetry, not just Hebrew poetry. Uses images, as we saw, uses word pictures, uses non-literal language, or we describe that as metaphorical, and this kind of language gives vividness. And because of this metaphorical aspect, that's what we mean when we speak of poetic license. In other words, when you're reading poetry, uh, don't interpret it rigidly. Give some room for some flexibility in interpreting poetic language. That's part of the nature of it. Can you see immediately when you're exegeting the Psalms, you're going to treat the Psalms a little bit differently than you are the writings of Paul. There's a little bit of uh, license in that. But still, you interpret even the metaphorical language literally in the sense, what was the image that was, or what does this image try to convey in terms of a thought or idea that the author intended. So just because it's metaphorical doesn't give us the, the license, the poetic license even, to go beyond the author's intent. There's flexibility that's built in by the author, but we need to look at what did the author intend. Just as we've always said before. Interpret metaphorical language literally in the sense of seeking the author's intended meaning. Not in the sense that we can inject whatever idea we want to into what the author has put before us. So look for picturesque language, there might be even symbols, there might be figures, figures of speech, lots of similes, lots of metaphors, more so than what you would find in non-metaphorical language or literature. And uh, to reemphasize what we started with, when we're dealing with poetic, we're talking about issues that are real, true to life. So add a characteristic of trueness here. These are not mythical. There's such a thing as epic poetry that was even common in ancient writings. Some uh, Greek literature is epic poetry that in some cases can be fanciful and can be non-real. But when we come to the biblical poetry, it always has that element of truth to it. These are true experiences that real people experience. And most of the Psalms are expressions of experiences that people have gone through. And some of them are in the form of prayers offering these difficult circumstances up to God. So keep that element in mind. And fourthly, I've already mentioned rhyme is either non-existent in some Hebrew poetry But there is what you might describe as the use of some sounds in some limited cases. Sometimes an author will use what's called assonance. He might put two words that sound similar. That's a form of rhyme, but that is rare. It does occur, and it has been observed, but obviously it would be difficult to get the same idea from the Hebrew or even the Greek, correspond uh, corresponding translations in English or any other language. It's called assonance, words which sound alike. I've got in my notes Genesis 49.17. The one that comes to mind, where it appears Moses is using assonance, and like I said, you have to understand the Hebrew to read these out. First of all, Genesis 2, verse 23. Let me read that one to you. And let me bring out what we mean by assonance. And obviously, we're not reading the Hebrew, but uh, I remember the Hebrew, so I'll give it to you. In verse 23, it says, And the man said, this is the creation of man and woman, and the woman is taken out of the man. And when the man sees the woman, this is his response. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, that's the Hebrew word, because she was taken out of Ish. And Isha, there's a debate, but it, Isha is not necessarily the feminine of Ish. But it does mean woman and Ish does mean man And it appears that what Moses is doing is using those two because of the sound, because they sound the same. And this is poetic. We have parallel lines there. This is now bone of my bones, line one. Flesh of my flesh, line two. Synonymous. See that? She shall be called woman, line one, because she was taken out of man. And we have ish, isha, and ish in that context. Now... In chapter, well, at the end, uh, notice verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked. Uh, the Hebrew word there is arah, And then verse 1, the serpent was more crafty. That one is... The word crafty in the Hebrew, ara type. But the sound is very close to the word "naked," and you have a contrast from the end of chapter two with the word that you have in uh, chapter three and the serpent. The serpent is, and I think it's a deliberate—at least most scholars believe that it, it's a deliberate use of assonance. In other words, one word in contrast to another word that sounds very similar. That makes sense. So. Not strictly speaking rhyme as common, but it does occur in these forms, assonance. There also seems to be the example of alliteration, where, you know what alliteration is? It's where one word begins with a letter, and then you use another word that begins with the same letter, and maybe a third same letter, and you find that in some passages. An example of that would be Philippians three two. And again, you'd have to look it up in the Greek where Paul uses three words in succession there. They all start with kappa or K, the K sound in the Greek. And sometimes they're used in, in word plays. You've heard a word play. Sometimes assonance is used or sometimes alliteration is used. But that's the closest that you come to this idea of rhyme. And even these, these are isolated and somewhat rare in comparison to the amount of poetry that you find. An example from English. I had a, a friend. This is way back. This is when Norman Vincent Peale was popular. Remember him, motivational speaker. This friend of mine used to say, "I find I find Paul appealing and Peel appalling." <laughs> you see the alliteration there: Peel and Paul, appealing and appalling. So you have the A's and the P's there, kind of working together in a little, kind of catchy little phrase. That's the same kind of thing that these authors seem to be doing using uh, the Hebrew sounds. So those are your characteristics. There's also, in rare cases, what are called acrostics. And they're not just psalms, but they're more common in the psalms famous one is Psalm 119. In fact, you may turn to Psalm 119. I want you to notice something once you get there. Notice it's broken down in paragraphs, and I don't know how your translators have treated it, but the King James, in the King James Version, as what you might describe as a title, it's not really a title, but at the head of each of those paragraphs, in the King James, you have the Hebrew alphabet. Yep. So, if you want to learn the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, He, and it spells it out. Any of you have that in your versions? Okay. My New American Standard Version has it spelled out in English. And this is an acrostic. So, there's 22 paragraphs because there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And you have all of the letters represented by every paragraph. This is an acrostic because every one of those paragraphs begins with a word that corresponds to that heading there. So in other words, the first paragraph, the first word, begins with an aleph. And the second paragraph, the first word, begins in bait, etc. Psalm 9 and 10 together form an acrostic. And I should have said that what an acrostic is, is you have the first letter of each sentence, or the first letter in that case, Psalm 119, of each paragraph starts with the letters of the alphabet, and then they run sequentially. Another example might be Psalm 111 and 12 together form an acrostic. So that would mean that probably verse, or verse 1 would begin with Aleph. And it's probably not the word praise there, because the Hebrew can rearrange words just like the Greek does. But the first word in the Hebrew would be Aleph, and then verse 2, the first word in verse 2 would be Beit, and work your way through Lamentations. The first four chapters of Lamentations, you have acrostics. Except for the last chapter is not Chapter 1, 22 verses, that's a single acrostic. Chapter 2, a single acrostic. Chapter 3, 66. I don't think it's a triple acrostic, it might be. And in chapter 4, you have 22 verses again, so you have a single acrostic there. But not in chapter 5. little unique feature, which probably tells you that the writers of poetic language, went through a lot of trouble, a lot of thought, went into the writing of whatever psalms or books that they wrote, Proverbs. Just wasn't cooked overnight with just a few thoughts here and there thrown together. Some deep thought here. Those are your major characteristics. Obviously the last two not very prominent, but they do occur in terms of some psalms, some writings. And the main one again, parallelism is your main feature there. So that is narrative and that is poetry. First narrative, second poetry.